I think the way most people try and depict the future places either very dystopian and frightening futures where nobody wants to be because it's Mad Max and Blade Runner and all that, or it's very shiny and, and um, glitzy and I guess the kind of tech porn that we see all these 3D renderings. So for me, I think actually the bit that got me hooked was this idea of the everyday and the kind of regularity of what we do and particularly what we do at home and I felt that one thing I don't see enough of in how we might depict the future is any sense of how we're going to feel when we're there all we see is the kind of tangible benefits that we're supposed to all be enthralled to so driverless cars and living in these pods that are self-cleaning or whatever there's never any sense of whether we take our depressions with us. There's never any sense of what my life would actually feel like if I'm in those environments. Having spent so much time really digging into the emotional sides of life at home, I'm this evangelist for really talking about our feelings when it comes to the way that we live, because I just don't think you can decouple them. I just saw in this idea that we could look at the everyday future, we could also take all this extraordinary knowledge that we're building about our emotional state and take that into an exploration of what the future of life at home might look like. And that felt really different for me. I felt that wasn't anything that we had done. We hadn't created a sense of the future life at home with this emotional dimension. This is episode 25 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast. When I wrote the essay, Design Fiction, back in 2008, it felt a bit like a humble culmination of two threads. One was my fascination with making things, actual material things. That's the reason why I suppose I went off to study engineering in college. Growing up, engineers and architects, they, they built stuff. This was before I came to know about and learn design practices, but later, when I worked in design studios at Nokia and elsewhere, and then designed my own physical product and my own company, Amada, I came to deeply appreciate the power of the object as a way of telling a story and a way of touching people in an emotional way. This was key. It's not just prose that tells stories, things do as well. This idea was new to me to hear and say out loud, but I've been shaping my consciousness since I was a kid, staring in fascination at artist renderings of space settlements. Those things immediately transported me to a future and to a sense of possibility. Over the decades, my canonical example of this is the Star Trek Starfleet technical manual. It's a manual, quite literally, of the instruments and objects and even fashion of the Star Trek universe. The manual is made as if that world exists. And that, to me, was just mind-blowing. The second thread that informed my essay, Design Fiction, was, well, science fiction. My interest in that genre of storytelling is principally based on how science fiction, you know, functions as a kind of telling science-based stories about possible science-based worlds. It's a literary genre, it's prose, whose measure of success is based on the storyteller's ability to get the reader to suspend their disbelief so they become immersed in the story. When I did my PhD at UC Santa Cruz, this was a key area of study for me. And just parenthetically, it was a humanities PhD. So in a way, I saw myself as doubling down on what I saw as the future of engineering, which is to say, engineers should very much appreciate the worlds for which they are building stuff and do that in a way that engineering education, well, it simply doesn't provide at all. The generalist engineer who carries with them a recognition that they are making culture through material that they are interdependent with everyday people, not just uh, building something for some canned scenario that a UX program manager put together for them. Frederick Jameson said, we must therefore now return to the relationship of science fiction and future history and reverse the stereotypical description of this genre. What is indeed authentic about it as a mode of narrative and a form of knowledge is not at all its capacity to keep the future alive even in the imagination. On the contrary, its deepest vocation is over and over again to demonstrate and to dramatize our incapacity to imagine the future. 
What Jameson is saying is that science fiction, in his view, reminds us how difficult it is to imagine the future, specifically a future that is more habitable in some sense than today, and a future that is not mired in the all-too-familiar, the expected outcomes. Now, Jameson was a remarkably incisive critic, and by that I don't mean he was a cynic. He was incisive precisely because he drew out useful insights and inspired perspectives that were helpful for rich understandings of the exciting aspects of things like science fiction and historiography. Okay, so why am I telling you all of this? Well, it's because design fiction is adjacent to science fiction. It's not written stories about possible futures. It does not look like science-based prose fiction. Rather, it's the making of things that come from possible futures. It is using archetypes like fictional product advertising, a fictional instruction manual, like that Star Trek Starfleet technical manual I mentioned earlier. Science fiction as prose-based forms of science-based storytelling is amazing. It's remarkable. It was inspirational to me. But I'm not so great at prose-based storytelling. I'm an engineer. I'm a designer. I'm a futurist. What I am good at is making and imagining things from the future. And that's just what I did with IKEA last winter with my collaborator and this episode's guest, Katie McCrory. We used design fiction to imagine a small corner in the kitchen of everyday life in a possible future. Katie runs the Life at Home project at IKEA. It's one of the world's largest qualitative and quantitative research projects on life at home. The research is done in support of better understanding everyday life at home in order to find ways to make that life more habitable, enjoyable, livable. Because the research is provided as a bit of a public good, we're able to talk about it and talk about the project we did together. Now, just before we start, here's the rough schema of how we went about this, and it's very simple. There aren't lots of hexagons, not lots of arrows, not lots of different colored post-it notes. We poured ourselves into the research outcomes, and there was a lot. We applied our futurist mindsets and our creativity and our imagination and thought of ways of representing aspects of that research as a design fiction. The culmination of that was a translation of the research into a product design fiction. You can find that in the magazine Katie and her team produce. It's an actual magazine. It's amazing. I don't want to explain too much because part of the fun and power of design fiction is to come across it without having too much explained or having someone tell you what to look for. Check the links in the show notes where you'll find the Life at Home research results as well as the Life at Home magazine in which we had our design fiction. So this is what I'm saying. Design fiction is storytelling through artifacts. You make a thing and allow the thing to imply the world. Science-based fiction makes pages of prose that tell a story about the world. Can you get the difference? I'm not trying to quibble, but I am trying to emphasize the importance of the difference because I think it's from that distinction that we can actually do both together and create visions, uh, futures that would otherwise be too hard to imagine. Not just prose, but the things that allow us to suspend our disbelief and imagine a changed world. This is episode 25 of the Near Future Laboratory podcast, and I'm your host, Julian Bleeker. Please consider supporting this podcast, which you can do on patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. I do all these myself. There's no producer, no assistant, but it does take time and I can't help but do them. But it helps if you help me by showing your love and support. It's a little thing that has a big impact on my enthusiasm for producing these conversations. You also might be interested in General Seminar, the platform I developed for making sense of the curious, crazy, chaotic new things that are constantly imposing themselves on us. In General Seminar, we take topics of the moment, things like crypto, blockchain, metaverse, and use the format of the seminar to discuss them in a small, thoughtful, engaged way to help make sense. Just head on over to GeneralSeminar.com to find out more and sign up. We'll be starting Season 2 of General Seminar in February. Oh, there's also a design fiction newsletter over at buttondown.com slash design fiction. That's my roughly twice monthly newsletter where I offer my thoughts on the relationship between design, futures, strategy, and tactics. Please sign up. Uh, also, there's our Discord where we're making products in the future. I won't say more than that because that's a little bit uh, confusing, but if you sign up and go through the quite simple trouble of introducing yourself there, chances are you and I will have a nice, fun one-on-one -on -one chat because I've been doing that as I'm too busy to produce the uh, onboarding video that people say I need to create. And anyway, chats are fun, more fun than a video. Okay, so now on to my conversation with Katie McCrory. 
I listened to the, the podcast you did with Nick um, and heard you guys talking about Range, the book. Yeah. Which, like, I, my husband and I both read. And it's really hard to position yourself sometimes as a generalist because people saying, ah, Jack of all trades, master of none, blah, blah, but there's an extraordinary benefit from having the diversity of skills that someone like you has, but it can come with this sort of slightly lonely sense that you're the only one that can do all the bits of the stuff that you can do. And how do you take that to someone or some place? And how do you market yourself when you've, yeah, or how do you identify the next opportunity where you can bring all of these bits together? It's, um, I don't know. It's I've, Anyway, I thought the book was fantastic because it really helped me lean into my generalisms um, and see them for what they are, which is strengths, not weaknesses. But when you work in an organization, it can be quite hard to maneuver as a generalist because you want to do really interesting, creative things or not necessarily creative. You might just want to do interesting things, but um yeah, people don't always know quite where to put you. They want you to be a specialist. <laughs> right. If you were to try to imagine what that looked like in the future, what am I trying to ask? <clears throat> the tension is so exciting, Julian. <laughs> <laughs> trying to become more comfortable with... In silence, I know. I'm re- I'm awful. I always just I like fill the void. I'm like keep talking, keep talking. It's right. a great skill. It's a great skill to be able to sit there with the silence and wait. I'm trying to become more comfortable dealing with various kinds of uncertainties, and not just the big kind of oh you're a futurist like you deal with uncertainty all the time, but just I don't know what I'm going to say next. <laughs> yeah, but it becomes very like meta, you know. If you think too hard about how your brain is processing thought and language it, it, it kind of screws with I don't I, I mean I'm not a biologist so I don't know the first thing about how the kind of fraction of lightning speed that the neurons in my brain send messages to other parts of my brain that allow me <laughs> allow me to use a language to express a thought that I don't even know I've had until I said it out loud that is an incredible thing um yeah but you're right. It's like, we don't, we don't know what we know. We don't know what we think until we articulate it actually, because, um, that's the first time we put words on it. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be an outward expression. Of course it can be an inward expression, but, um, but we still use language in our own internal narrative. There's something about coming to be comfortable. I don't know, being comfortable with the, with first of all saying, I don't know, and then holding on to and being comfortable with maybe even luxuriating in the, I don't know what's going to come next. Mm, mm. And you're not doing it because you want to, you feel like a lack, the kind of lack of like, I am totally unhelpful in this situation because I have nothing to say, but you're mm. leaving that space open for it to be filled by something from somewhere. Who knows? Yeah. What yeah. Sequence of firing neurons, or maybe it's just the muse allows like something to like just zip by for some reason. Part of, the kind of practice that that you and I engaged in last year when we were working on the Life and Home project involved a lot of let's just leave space open to mm-hmm. see what comes mm-hmm. and fills in order to you know help us tell a story that was just at the, the edge. We know the kind of story that we want to tell about a possible future, but we don't know the objects in it. We're not quite sure where they are. And so we have to open up the space, the imagination to mm-hmm. allow them to happen without overdetermining what it might be at the end. Even though you could say, I know the kinds of things that would be suitable to represent in a a representation of a future that is underwritten by Ikea. The playing field, I guess. You don't know the the state of the game (laughs) necessarily or the state of play. Yeah. And I think it's it's a really interesting topic because I've actually had to work quite hard, I think, on myself to work in that way. I mean, the practice of design fiction is very new to me. But this, as you said, that kind of um, acceptance that we don't know the answers and we leave space for ambiguity and we leave space for exploration is something that doesn't... I I don't think it came very naturally to me as a sort of communications professional, which is my background. Because I think when you're in 
comms and when you're in particular on the coal face of comms as I was so I worked for a number of years in PR and media relations and you always need to know what the message is you've got to own the narrative you've got to own the direction of, of travel for whatever your story is and when you work in crisis communications as I did for a number of um, clients you, you cannot leave space for ambiguity you have you have to come in hard and fast to set the agenda set the news agenda and I think that um you then lose exactly this, the kind of flip side to the narrative building, which is the open space for imagination and curiosity and asking questions and not jumping to answers. So when I first started working at IKEA and I took on the, the Life at Home report, I was really interested in creating space for the research. So I've always been really interested in thinking about how do we use insights to develop really compelling stories and, and narratives um, that help position the brand, but also create real engagement and allow us to develop you know, new business ventures and impact at scale. Um, but in order to be faithful to the research, you can't presuppose what you're going to find. So I think what I started to do was to really learn from the work my colleagues were doing on the research side to understand how they were building hypotheses and then testing those hypotheses through different research method methodologies until they would get to a point where we felt, okay, I think this is concretely now what we can start to say. And that's quite a scary process for a communications person because I always wanted to know, but what's the story going to be? Like, I can't build my campaign. I can't do the work until I know what the, the kind of the, the insights are going to be. I can't develop this proposition. Um, and, and I would also, I'd get a lot of people obviously within the organization asking me, what's the life at home report about this year? And it, it took a lot of, let's put my, give my big girl pants on and say, you know what? We don't know. And that for a, you know, felt quite shameful for a communications professional because you should always know, you know, you should always know what the story is. You should always know. Um, but I think creating that space and that's something now we've been doing, or I've been doing in the way that I've been working with it for the last five plus years, this will be our, our sixth year, um, with, with me working on it. Um, and the ninth year of the report itself, I think we've really created that space for true exploration to, to be able to partner with our research colleagues to help, um, nudge and prompt where we think the research direction could be interesting yeah. but not come in with we want to be able to say this we want the headlines to say that i think that kills i mean that, that you know kills research um and it, and it kills the potential for you to say something interesting because i think the most interesting things are the things that you're least expecting right. and i would say every single year we've done the life at home report and it, it we follow a yearly cycle uh, and we kick off around about now so we're just kicking off the the process for the um, 22 report. Um, there's never been a year where I have ever felt I've known what the report is going to be about until we're pretty much end, at the end of the process. And so that's a kind of, that's almost like a nine month long process of really not actually knowing where yeah. we're going to go with it. We, we start to whittle it down and we're able to develop campaign concepts within a kind of, yeah, playing field. But, um, but we really do create the space for the insights to come in and help us. How do we respond to that? How do we feel about these things? What's the story that we're actually being told rather than trying to layer on a story on top? And I think that gets us to a much more interesting place from a, both a research and a storytelling perspective, because it's genuine. It's really come from a place of open questions and true exploration rather than wanting to tell people what we think we know. <laughs> Um, can you describe just in general terms the Life at Home report? So the Life at Home report is one of the world's largest um, pieces of research, single pieces of research into Life at Home around the world. Um, and IKEA has been doing this sort of signature project for nine years. Well, this will be the ninth year. So we're coming up for a decade. Um, and it's um, it's it started off as something that was really a way to... <laughs> I think understand the functional side of homes. So how do people organize themselves where they live? How do they, um, where do they do the activities that you do at home and, and how can our products and, and services help them with any challenges they might have in the home? 
But I think over the years, it's really shifted into something much more profound. Um, and now it's become uh, an exploration of the emotional side of home. So I would say the Life at Home report is really a piece of research that allows us to understand what we mean when we talk about the feeling of home, what creates the feeling of home. Um, and it allows us to take a kind of a much bigger look at some of the issues that, that people sit with uh, in life at home because we can take this sort of global um, perspective and then we do the research in all of the markets where IKEA has a presence, which is 32 markets. So there's always 30,000 plus people um, involved in the research from a um, participant perspective. And it's a mix of qual and quant. So, you know, it's interview based um, in a number of markets and then we do a survey as well. So we always have the kind of rich in-depth case studies of people's actual lived experiences. And then we have the data which allows us to take what might otherwise feel like fringe examples of people's experiences at home and allow us to understand actually is that kind of representative of the population at large. Mm -hmm. So over the years, we've explored everything from what are the emotional building blocks of home to what's the role of privacy in our health and well-being. Um, and last year, we, we really wanted to look at mental health uh, and the impact of the pandemic um, on people's experiences at home and, and the interconnection between how people felt about their homes and how they felt about themselves, essentially. So we were able from this year's research to see this very intimate connection between life at home and yeah, what's going, what's going on in our heads and our hearts, basically. And people who feel more positively about where they live are more likely to report better uh, mental health um, yeah, benefits. Um, yeah. And particularly if you make changes to to your home environment, you're far more likely then to report the sort of better mental health benefits as well. So a very powerful connection between how we feel and where we live, essentially. Yeah. I think it runs in both ways. So that's, yeah, that's essentially what the, the Life at Home report is. And then how does it function within the organization? So we have three overarching objectives for the report. Um, the first is that it's really designed to generate new knowledge. So we do research way beyond the Life at Home report. Of course, we know as a, we're a huge retail organization. We do retail um, exploration in the markets. We also do a lot of global research. We cover a lot of topics as a brand from sustainability to digitalization of you know, retail experiences and, and everything. There's a lot that we uh, dig around into um, from a research perspective. But I think where there's that gap is around this emotional aspect of home. I don't think until we really took that shift with the Life at Home report, we were doing that. So the first objective is to help fill that gap or to paint that picture as vividly as we can. It's to generate new knowledge about particularly the emotional side of home. And then we take those insights and we drive them into the business. We use them as a starting point to develop new range ideas. Uh, our designers use it as you know part of the huge range of stimulus they use to develop our, our products. And a lot of it, of course, goes into our innovation work as well. So all of the things we might do about where we invest and what kind of new innovations and initiatives we might run, um, a lot of it goes into that funnel as well. We use it to help shape sort of everything that we're doing as an organization from the way we communicate to the way we sell our products in the stores. And then the third objective is to share it with the wider world. So I think you'll probably agree insights are only meaningful if you can take action on them. Otherwise it just sits in a PowerPoint, right? So, um, and we're not the only organization, we're not the only company, we're not the only brand that cares about how we live at home. There's, there's a lot of people also um, heavily invested in that space. And, um, and I think through collaboration and partnership and just generally, you know, being open about what we know, I think we can move a lot further in making life at home better for more people. So I think we benefit a lot from sharing the research, uh, which is why we produce the report and you know, why we have a, a microsite um, and why this year we launched our first magazine as well, which you can see was something um, you worked on with us as well. So I think that's a really important part of why we do what we do is to use the insights to, to help ourselves, but also to help anyone else that's interested in the same kind of topic area. Sure. Was this the first report where you use design fiction or even just that you use the projective representation? So rather than just reporting 
the insights that came from the qual and quant research. So some stats and some perspectives um, based on interviews and that kind of thing, but then stepped into the imaginative space of looking forward. Yeah. It's certainly the first time we've done it with the report, but we there are other pieces of exploration and sort of storytelling development and I, I would say predominantly within the sustainability part of IKEA that works with foresight, speculative fiction. So there is uh, a sense of using a kind of futures prospecting um, approach at IKEA. And I think that really benefits the way that you position yourselves around the sustainability agenda, because you, you have to be able to create an image of the future you want to be a part of, right? If you want to take your customers there with you. Um, so we've done that, I think. To, and, and again, it's not, I don't think we've been doing that for a very long time, but I know certainly recently of, of being loosely involved in, in some of that stuff. But from a life at home perspective, we haven't yet worked with foresights. And actually this year, 22, will be the first year that we will start to bring foresights into the methodologies that we're using to develop the report. Um, otherwise, it's been insights. Um, so very much, very near future. We're talking three-year um, horizon line. It's very much always been a taste test of how people are experiencing their lives at home right now. Right. So, and we cast it into the year. So we always do the survey with a kind of a... You know, the question parameters is always in the last 12 months, have you felt post right. Um, To really get a sense of how people have been feeling, I guess, and, and what they've been doing um, in their lives at home in that year. So I think it was, for me at least, as a you know practitioner, it was very exciting to step into this, um, yeah, this unknown world of um, design fiction and, um, and thinking about more of that kind of foresight. How do we start to... Yeah, move the horizon line further ahead when we yeah. talk about time. What was that experience more, more practically speaking within an organization? And the reason I'm asking that question is I definitely have the question and I think a lot of other people have the question of, okay, so I get this stuff and it seems cool mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure how it fits within my organization. When we were working together, it felt like you were really excited and passionate about the approach. And I, and I got the sense that you had a, an instinct, like a strong instinct that this will be a value. I hope. <laughs> and, and I, I felt like you were really going come from a place, not a place of, okay, I've been instructed to do this, but more, I think this is going to bring something unique and special and maybe there'll be un, unanticipated, unexpected, beautiful outcomes from doing it. Mm, and I, mm. it, it, it felt like you were taking like a little bit of a calculated risk. <laughs> Wasn't your thought on the plate yeah, yeah. that there would be people saying, um, okay, wait, what is this? I'm not used to seeing this kind of thing. And what am I supposed to do with it? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I wonder if you just maybe just reflect more on the experience of you in particular, yeah. uh, setting out to, to do this thing. It almost felt like without permission. Like, oh yeah. 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 And I think that's it. I would st- I think it's important to to kind of say that I genuinely believe I have the best job in the world. I have an extraordinary amount of freedom to run the Life at Home report and the Connected campaign and communications around it in a way that I feel is going to do the best possible thing for IKEA as a brand and as a business, but also for our customers and, and for people at large. And I think that is an extremely privileged position to be in. Very trusting management that I work with and fantastic colleagues. And I think a culture at IKEA that really favors entrepreneurial thinking, which is quite staggering within a company that's as a brand across IKEA, there are 200,000 people that, that work for IKEA. We're enormous. And I think to be able to retain that sense of being nimble and responsive and creative and entrepreneurial is something quite special. So I think it's that kind of in that context, having been given quite a lot of permission to make choices about how I think we could and should do this. I do think the kind of step into design fiction was, was still probably quite a step away from maybe what people were expecting. But for me, I mean, it came from yeah, it was both. It was both a personal thing as well as a professional thing. 
Because I think when you work with something year on year, or if you're inclined as I am, then you really want to stretch yourself every time you do it. You don't want to just do a replay of how you did it before, right? I'm always looking for what's the, what could we push into? How do we stretch ourselves creatively and strategically? Um, And like I say, I mean, I'm very new to design fiction, but it just, the way that Nick talked about it, who was my sort of first entry point into what you guys are doing, and then seeing the kind of work that you had done, it just made so much sense. It just seemed um, so rooted in the everyday mundane. And I think that was the bit that got me interested because I thought, God, what a, what a slightly perverse notion that we're going to explore the future, but from a really mundane perspective, like there's something there because life is generally day to day. It's pretty boring. I mean, you're in your rhythms and your habits and your responsibilities. And for the most part, it's not, I mean, of course there are people I'm sure who live very exciting daily lives and, um, but the rest of us are chugging along, putting one foot in front of the other. Um, and I think there's, um, this sort of, a there's just a huge potential to actually understand what that means for the future that we're going to build. If the majority of us are actually just doing our jobs, raising our kids, seeing our friends, walking our dogs, being happy probably for the most part, right? But not necessarily living these sort of fantastical lives that I think the way most people try and depict the future places either very dystopian and frightening futures where nobody wants to be because it's Mad Max and Blade Runner and all that, or it's very shiny and... and um, it's glitzy and I guess the kind of tech porn that we see all these 3D renderings. So for me, I think actually the bit that got me hooked was this idea of the everyday and the kind of regularity of what we do and particularly what we do at home. And I felt that one thing I don't see enough of in how we might depict the future is any sense of how we're going to feel when we're there. All we see is the kind of tangible benefits that we're supposed to all be enthralled to. So driverless cars and living in these pods that are self-cleaning or whatever. There's never any sense of whether we take our depressions with us or I don't know how, I don't know, there's never any sense of what my life would actually feel like if I'm in those environments. And having spent so much time really digging into the emotional sides of life at home and this mad evangelist for really talking about our feelings when it comes to the way that we live, because I just don't think you can decouple them. I don't think you can ever have a conversation about how you choose to live your life without talking about the way it makes you feel, because what we do is absolutely shaped by how we feel and our lives at home are both influencing our, our psyche um, and the other way around, the way that we feel about ourselves has, a, has an, an impact on how life at home plays out. So I just saw in this idea that we could look at the everyday future, we could also take all this extraordinary knowledge that we're building about our emotional state and take that into sort of an exploration of what the future of life at home might look like. And that felt really different for me. I felt that wasn't anything that we had done. We hadn't created a sense of the future life at home with this emotional dimension. Um, and I just wasn't really seeing it in much of the, I guess, at the very sort of, um, uh, highbrow, um, or, or glitzy depictions of, of the future. I wasn't really seeing a, a sense of how that would make me feel. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why, why wouldn't those fantastical futures, why not those? They're aspirational in a particular sense. In other words, they depict something new that mm-hmm. maybe connects directly to a part of an organization that, like IKEA that's like, hey, we need to know what to do next year. What should we be doing that is um, somehow taking advantage of or participating in the things that maybe now seem fantastical, but in a future will be as ordinary as a mobile phone, which at some point mm-hmm. was absolutely fantastical. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. I see what you, yeah, that point. I, yeah. It's the, the point around um, what seems fantastical in the future will of course be mundane and every day for future Casey, future Julian. Right. Um, but I think there's a sort of 
where there's a failure of imagination if we don't take with us the, the sort of emotional building blocks of what those things will do for us. Um, I think maybe one of the ways we help manage around or work with or acknowledge the existence of unintended consequences is to maybe as part of that exploration of what there might be and what we might need to do as a company or as a brand is to have that sense always that we design with empathy in mind, but truly rooted in how these things will make people feel mm-hmm. and, and how they feel now and how they want to feel in the future. So we can be better at thinking about solutions that are not just new or um, and don't just necessarily fix a problem that we think we found, but um, but do the harder, deeper work of kind of staying with people emotionally and, and thinking about that. So I think seeing from the research we did this year when we asked people what their ideal home would look like in the future, we heard people talking about this sort of need to feel safe and secure. And a lot of that, of course, was in response to the pandemic. And people wanted a lot of greenery in their homes and um, they didn't want to feel, I think they wanted to feel more in control. So a lot of things that people were pointing to in their ideal homes, I think, reflected actually their totally reflected their mental state, this need for security and stability to not want to feel rocked by things happening in the world, but that home was a place that they could control for. Um, I think that allows for a much more interesting exploration of a future life at home that doesn't always have to be about, I don't know, the internet of things and whether or not your fridge can tell you you've run out of milk, right? Like, I think there's space for both, and space for both. But, but I think we leave the picture sort of half-drawn if we don't also take the emotional side into it. Yeah. It was interesting doing the project because it was just the way, way we translated or put the insights from the research into a, a big stew pot and put <laughs> it around for a few weeks to see the kinds of things that came out of it. And my own reflection on it was that it felt like we came out with something that could have become at least one of the artifacts that we came out with the home garden um, Mm. device apparatus that could have been super fetishized. And I think because of the reasons that you're describing, that wasn't the thing that was just the, that was the shard of pottery that we found in the archeological dig around which we were going to construct this, sense of what life at home in the future could be that happens to have the sensibilities and the values and the kind of the cultural norms and expectations of what life could be like if something like this also existed not Mm. life Mm. didn't exist because of this this was a symptom of a kind of invigorated set of sensibilities and values that the research indicated was was something that people were searching for, that wanted, they were constructing themselves in a kind of ad hoc way. And it almost mm-hmm. felt like this is what, um, this is how Ikea could participate in this. Not saying Ikea is going to lead the way and we're going to tell the world how it's going to be. It's we're almost like, um, there was a sense of like interdependence. Ikea seeing itself in people's homes, not as the master of the home or not as the controlling operating system or mm. not preferred android versus ios pick one or the other but we are here with you we understand who you are we spend an enormous amount of time energy human um, resources imagination to to we understand what it is to be you and we're not going to give you a solution we're going to be there with you we're going to participate with Mm -hmm. you making a richer more engaged possible future yeah I think that's right. And it's such a privilege for me to, to to do this kind of work. And it's also such a privilege for IKEA to be in the most intimate space that people have, which is their homes. We're in so many of them. Like it's, that's such a, an extraordinary thing. Um, and what, what I loved about the way that we could work, because as you say, we developed this idea this concept of a home farm. Whilst we rendered it in a way that made it feel, you know, believable and feasible. We didn't, as you say, fetishize the product. So we placed it immediately in a context that showed its interdependence with family life. And and I think just the fact that we used photographs from 
our research, actual research participants who were photography that we have gathered over the years when we've met people in their homes and interviewed them and they've taken part in the research. We we always use photography of real people in in real homes for the report. And the fact that we could then use that as a context for this product and actually place it in a domestic setting Mm -hmm. was such a small detail that said so much about what we were trying to do. Because it would be very easy to create a room set, a staged room set in which the product is heroed, but we didn't. We we played with that idea in, in the, the fake advert that we developed. We play with because that is what people expect from IKEA. They expect the room sets and and so on. I think you have to work with the hook that people recognize and go, oh, I get that here. But in the context of the editorial that we did for it, all of the all of the imagery was. Yeah, really wove together this sense of familiarity with the new. And that, like you say, it's it's very much about understanding the role that IKEA can play in people's lives at home without yeah, having to be center stage or having to always be the preferred brand, but just being part of a collective sense of life at home for any family or any household anywhere is enough to be able to contribute in a really great way. Mm. Um, And I think that was what was so interesting about how we could work with this. And I'm not sure if there are many other ways at IKEA that we could do that in the way that we did, Um, because we had an outlet for it. We had a magazine. And like I say, I didn't ask for permission, but not that I've had to ask for forgiveness either, but um, we just did it um, to see how it would work. Um, And I, it's, I mean, it's just one one of the most, sort of fun things I've been able to do um, since working on, on this project was that sort of little sprint. Um, but also, as you say, with the sort of stewing pot, just pouring everything in and seeing where we get to with it and knowing something will come out that will, well, that's interesting. Yeah. That's the thing. And I think maybe that comes from, maybe that comes from experience or just maybe just knowing something, you, you have the right collection of purpose and people and mm-hmm. uh, something's come out the other end I'm curious, how, so how's it gone over yeah good so far from what I can tell so um the magazine's gone out as a print copy to various IKEA leaders and sort of other stakeholders I guess we'd call them and it's just been really positively uh, received I think just, just generally the magazine um just the the piece that, that we collaborated on together but I think generally the idea of the magazine being something that allows us to position insights in a different way than a report and allows you to play with brand journalism and think about different kind of artistic collaborations and so on, which we can't typically do with a kind of report format. Um, So the whole thing was a very kind of creative gamble in that sense, but it's been really well received. And when I've spoken to people, sort of their thoughts and so on, I think a lot of people have been really interested in the design fiction piece. I think in particular, actually, we're really interested in the Q&A that we did right at the end. (laughs) Because that obviously kind of unpacks, what was this thing I've just read? What was that? (laughs) And we, um, yeah, show the, I guess, show the great Oz behind the curtain, right? But um I think actually for some people that was really interesting because that was like, oh, okay, well, that's like a different way of doing something. Yeah. Um, the title of our little short, just a couple page Q&A is Designing the Future of Life at Home, Using Design Fiction to See Ahead. And there was a way in which you described design fiction as a creative individual and as also someone who has this important role within an organization like I- IKEA. What? How does it function for you? What is it? Um, design fiction. Um, you can pause and not say anything for as long as you mm, enjoy the silence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really lean on the fiction because for me, it's about telling stories and I think in all the work I've ever done throughout my career so far, whether it's media communications or not, because I've worked in different roles as well, it's always about the story you can tell because stories are how we create change. Stories are how we connect. Stories are how we understand who we are. And so for me, design fiction is about saying, let's use all those brilliant qualities of storytelling 
and use them to help explain and show and make vivid a future that, or one of many futures that we may live in and do it in a way that feels relatable to me right now. And I think that's the bit that I really get from design fiction and the way that you guys work with it is it doesn't require me to make this cosmic leap between my life as it is today and my life as it might be in 10 years time. It makes me feel like it's stretching me somewhere to something that is a little uncomfortable and strange and unfamiliar, but has its roots in who I am right now. Mm. So it's a very, um, yeah, in that sense, it's very empathetic in the same way that, you know, stories that stick are the ones that resonate with people and they resonate because they help us see ourselves. So stories have to have a combination of, um, mirrors and windows. They have, you have to see yourself, but also open out onto something new, I think. And I think that's what design fiction really does. It's almost the process of creating mirrors and windows around where we might be in, you know, 10 years time. Um, that I can always see myself in it, but this sort of sense of, oh, I, I might become that person that lives in this way with these attributes and, and these things. And yeah, so that's, I guess, what it means to me. Um, and then I wait for, because that's a really wordy way of... <laughs> explain what it is to me I guess you know to other people and as and as we had in the, the Q&A as well um if you have to explain it to someone very quickly you would say okay you, you're going to be sent to the future in 10 years time you got five minutes what are you going to grab because that kind of shortcuts that sense of well you're not going to grab a flying car are you because you can't take it back with you so <laughs> what are you going to shove in your rucksack and that brings it right down onto a domestic and, and, a, and a much more ephemeral level um, that anyone can already. I'm just looking at around me right now. What would I grab? What would I take? Um, yeah, it starts to tell you a lot about what we have in our homes that communicate about us and about the state of the world we're in. Um, like you say, it's the, the shard of, um, it's a shard of Roman pottery that we use to extrapolate extraordinary things around. Mm. Like I'm a big fan of these archeological shows. I don't know if you, um, if you get this one in the U S but there was this sort of fantastic archeology span show called time team in the UK during the nineties. And, um, we had a family friend who was one of the kind of archeologists that was on it. And, um, and so we went, she would take us like field digging so we would literally go and find bits of roman pottery in the fields and um and i love watching those shows because they would take like this two inch bit of ceramic that they found in a field and build a whole kind of pot around it and then they would place it in the context of this sort of extraordinary you know roman villa and they sort of build this like amazingly vivid thing from this shard of pottery and of course it's wild speculation we can't be sure that's what it looked like and so on but I think we're so we love to be able to show how people in the past were so much like us they ate and they drank and they partied and they raised their kids and they went to work and they got angry and they got sad and that sense that people living thousands of years ago were actually pretty much we are today that I think using that same enthusiasm and energy to be able to depict the future I think is really fun because it allows us to yeah hold the mirror and open the window right to, to the future. Especially if we can do that. So that was beautiful. Amazing. Um, Thanks. <laughs> the, um, the windows and mirrors imagery is, uh, is particularly evocative. I'm not sure exactly, but I see what you're saying. Um, but I like the metaphor, the metaphor, it's a you know visual metaphor, seeing things and looking through things that have mm. a particular frame around them so they contextualize which what is beyond that window in a particular way. Mm. Um, and maybe the, sometimes the window is tinted in particular fashion and you're not sure what you're, the, the, it, it leaves open the possibility of imagining what's outside of the frame. Mm -hmm. And you just see a little corner. A little bit of it. Yeah. Um, 
I should probably stress, by the way, that I've definitely read that somewhere. Like, I'm like one of these people that just like reads and consumes and picks up a lot and then blends it together in my brain and regurgitates it. So if anyone's sitting there going, I've definitely read that in a book, then hands up. Well, one, one of the things that's exciting about or excites me when hearing you describe design fiction that way is that that there is this possibility for seeing something that maybe isn't, hasn't been uh, well represented before. So the possibility of, of seeing something other than maybe more dominant narratives about what mm-hmm. the future looks like. Mm. And and leaving that open is really is really exciting. In other words, other people have their own windows because we're all differently situated. And if we take the metaphor to the maybe too far, just to say like we live in different homes and we have different communities around us, speaking metaphorically, so that we might see something different. And that's okay. You don't just have to see the Elon Musk, we're all going to go to Mars yeah. vision, or a, a, a handful of us are going to go to Mars and the rest of us are going to rot away in a, in a <laughs> yeah. you can see a future where this is what I, this is what I want to see. And I think the first step is so important in these kind, and maybe the unspoken uh, purpose of design fiction is to open up the imagination because the first thing to mm-hmm. obtain that kind of more habitable world that you want is being able to see or seeing it in other people's representations of that future. And not everyone sees the, the future looking like the matrix. Not everyone sees the future looking Terminator to mm, mm. take over those kinds of things, which is something that I feel like I've, I've said to myself like over and over again, like that the, it's possible to imagine the world otherwise and other kind of looking differently and a future that can we can imagine a future that is different from the ones that we don't want Mm. yeah we've been um i mean i think i mentioned a bit earlier on that design fiction is new as a process for me certainly but the idea of speculative you know fiction and exploration um, is something that IKEA has been doing. So actually on the sustainability side, they've been working with um, Solarpunk as a way to explore a possible climate resilient future because it does feel so much more hopeful mm. and it's filled with people and they're doing narrative building around that, which I think is really exciting. And from what I understand of the, the sort of testing they've been doing with the, the sort of story development, it's really resonating in a very hopeful, optimistic way with people. So I think there's a lot there. I think like all stories, we benefit from diversity. Because otherwise we risk stories becoming dominant truths and um, and we don't need to go that far back uh, to see how that has shaped our understanding of the world. Um, so, I mean, talking about archaeology, but I mean, so much of history is written by a man um, to the extent that a lot of people's experiences are undocumented, unacknowledged and completely missing from the way that we talk about the world as it was. Um, and I feel that sort of very personally when it comes to um, women in history and, and women as storytellers and women as historians and, yeah, the importance of, of diversity. And that's just on the gender side. So this, we have so far to go with ensuring that the way we talk about and understand the world is done through a diversity of voice and perspective. And like you say, it's so important then that the way we talk about our futures plural, um, is also done with that same emphasis on the diversity of experience. Um, yeah, because otherwise we do, we risk end up, we end up being enthralled to the Elon Musk version of the future. I don't want to live in the future that Elon Musk has in his mind. Um, I'm not sure if many other people do either, but you know, we place so much emphasis on what he has to say because of power and position and money. Right. Mm -hmm. But it is a white privileged man's view of what the world should be like and how it would be easier for people like him, um, rather than anyone else really. So, yeah, I think that's such an important part of how we get to create a compelling sense of where we're going. Yeah. Look, let me turn the tables and ask you a question. What was it like for you going under the bonnet a little bit of, of IKEA's research? And um, was there anything that surprised you in that? 
process of collaborating around, you know, the life at home report and these particular kinds of insights. There was, there was one distinctive thing that was surprising to me. Aside from the, well, I guess we had been in touch prior to you actually formally commissioning it, just um, you, you mm. were in contact with Nick. And so there was, I, I got the sense that this, that you really, it wasn't just, yeah, we'll give this a shot. It's just like, you really wanted to you know do the design picture for, okay, let's do it. Mm. Um, I think the thing that was surprising was the, I guess how far you were, it felt to me at the time that you were willing to go. I felt, let me, let's play this like a slightly conservative. <laughs> let's not go. Let's not, because I get the sense that it's, it's a challenge trying to get it. Well, it has been it to me, let's say the, the last 24, maybe 36 months, I, I guess in general, like trying to imagine where this fits into the places that I want to be able to practice this, which is within uh, organizations that can actually have an influence or impact on bringing about meaningful, habitable futures. Mm. So I'm, I'm, and part of, and that that ranges. So sometimes it's I enjoy mentoring. Let's call them students, so just like young creatives who, or intellectuals who are just setting out on their their trajectory. And I like doing that because I, it, they're just they're so excited. <laughs> they just want to. <laughs> it feels good. Yeah. Um, and so that I feel like I look at that and that is that's going to shape someone's consciousness, hopefully in a positive way. And I hope that benefits broadly. And then mm -hmm. the, the organizations like the Ikea's and the Apple's and the Google's of the world where it's and I struggle to anticipate someone saying, yeah, but I don't know how that's going to help us because I, I just I don't see it. I don't see where this mm -hmm. goes. Yeah. Um, it doesn't I don't know how where, where's the ROI? Can you explain mm, to me that? Mm, like, how does this yeah. benefit us in a way that I can justify to senior leadership who are all about the ROI sometimes? And so, but with you, and, and this is where I felt that maybe there was a little bit of risk-taking, which I understand now a little bit better, but it's, I remember in one of our early design sessions, I think I mentioned solar punk. Mm. And I, I remember almost not wanting to mention it because I was like, <laughs> That's going to be a can of worms. First of all, I'm going to be asked, I'm, I'm just imagining it didn't go this way. I'm going to be asked what it is. And I've only just discovered it. And it, you probably had heard about it as well, but I assumed that you hadn't. Mm. I, I assumed that. So having, finding, I think what that was a surprising thing is finding a client who suddenly became a partner, mm. a collaborator, not someone who was just looking for Hey, where are we on the Gantt chart in this project that mm. really wanted to dig in and be a part of the work in a quite intimate way? And that to me was really surprising. I wouldn't say shocking because it seems mm. at that point consistent with your just general character and personality and so forth. So I find that I found that really uh surprising slash encouraging but hopefully there are more katie's out there <laughs> <laughs> oh sure i yes i'm not an exotic breed and i, I think there's quite a few of us at ikea as well um certainly who who are uh who want to be in the process of the learning and the doing and the making um we're a lot of yeah very um we're a lot of very creative individuals and we like to explore and for me I really treat the work that I do as an opportunity to learn so I don't just want to outsource strategy I don't want to outsource creativity I don't see my job as a set of deliverables I see my job as an opportunity to really push and stretch myself in that process of getting to where we need to be to where we need to land um so I think that's, and that was an opportunity for me to actually be able to really step in with two feet and say, okay, I really want to play with this because this is cool. It would have been a tragedy if I had just commissioned you and set you off with a freelancer and yeah, yeah. didn't speak about it until you submitted something. I mean, it would just be a massive loss to me. I wouldn't be part of that, that process of learning and unpacking and exploring and I wouldn't get anything from it. I would get a product at the end of it. I'd get a tangible thing that I can print and share and show people, but I couldn't tell them how it came to be or how we might do it again or any of that stuff. So 
I think, uh, but yes, but I appreciate I've worked for big brands, um, that aren't Ikea and there probably is a skew towards wanting to outsource deliverables to agencies and, and consultants because we don't have bandwidth. And it, like I said, it's a real privilege for me to be able to have the time and the capacity to, to put step two feet in. But I would say as well, that's because I've spent the past five years building a really fantastic relationship with my the agency that I've been working with on this for yeah the past five years, four or five years. And they really are partners. And I, I think we, because we're all on the same page, we're all trying to do the same thing. I, you can't really unpick us. I come with the insider Ikea hat, but they're my team essentially. And I'm in their team and that's how we, that's how we do it. And I think that's how you get really good work because then you can be really honest with each other mm. and you can admit when things don't feel like they're working. Because if you've got this very formal relationship between a client and a agency or a contractor nobody wants to admit that they've got it wrong that they've briefed badly or they haven't come up with the right kind of creatives but if you're in the same space and you're all on the same team and you're doing it together you can all be part of that process I think you get a lot yeah you get a lot richer um work that way so that's always my preferred way to work actually and maybe that's unusual I don't know but I definitely have colleagues um that also really like to work in that way too so so maybe there's a there's an Ikea quality to it. <laughs> it's also the idea of like actually um, taking to the point of, as we did coming up with an, with an artifact, mm. but going all the way, we're going to create a design fiction ad. We basically did product design. I had it done up all properly and did all the mm, ways mm. of bedding it into the magazine with the ad. And then with the, mm. having it appear in some of the research photos and, that mm-hmm. kind of um, it doesn't, it doesn't always get that far. Sometimes it just gets as far as an idea for something and maybe a really low fidelity composition that is just meant to be like a reminder of the work as opposed to, mm-hmm. Hey, we're going to actually do this. And then the next step is like actually disseminate it through the organization with a kind of, without doing much of a, of a reveal. It's not until yeah. the magazine where it's like, Hey, did you see that ad Go yeah. again? Yeah. That was super. Yeah. That was really fun. I think we were lucky and I think it was a great opportunity that we had the magazine and we had this being the first edition of the magazine. So it was a complete, you know, experiment in that sense. I've never made a, I've never made a magazine before. Um, so I was learning a lot in this process. Um, but I think we really benefited from having that format of both yeah, absolutely. Presentation and distribution. And if we hadn't had the magazine, I feel confident we would have done something together anyway. But like you say, with a less certain sense of how to anchor it in the work going forwards. Um, so I think and maybe that's that's where my sort of communications hack comes into play. Did you play a hat? Anyway, <laughs> but that's well, <laughs> the, the innate communicator in me, you know, is, is always what's the audience? What's the channel? Who are you trying to reach and how are you trying to reach them? Don't create something unless you know where you're going to put it. Yeah. So, and, and you see that a lot, um, just generally, you know, I've, like I said, I've, I've worked for a lot of companies and, um, and NGOs and, and, and public sector clients as well sort of pre-IKEA. And I think there's this sort of desperate need to just create that. Oh, we need a film. Okay, but where are you going to put it? I don't know. Then why are we making it? That failure to understand who's it for and where's it going to go. Um, so, so for me, I think I wouldn't have commissioned you to work with us, to partner with us, unless I had a clear sense of what we were actually going to do with it, because then it's a waste of everyone's time, unless the work is very much about unlocking a sense of potential around how this could work as a sort of way of working if it's more about trying to tap into the culture of doing something then I you know I think then you can you you, yeah you try and inspire people um to come together but I think we really benefited from having the magazine as a distribution channel for this (laughs) yeah is it um is it available generally? I mean, is it uh, the magazine? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we've put it on the life at home microsite. Um, so maybe if I, if you've got show notes or something for your podcast, we can probably pop the link up. I do want to do that. I, li- I like that. I have something that has show notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put them down in the show notes. Yeah. 
exactly. Um, but yeah, so the, the magazine is available for people to read. Um, and yeah, it, it should feel mirrors and windows. It should feel like it reflects you and it opens up onto something else. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, we're going to develop this metaphor together. <laughs> Perfect. But this was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you for taking the time. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting. Okay, there she goes. Katie McCrory, IKEA Life at Home Project. That was lots of fun. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. I also hope you consider supporting the podcast. You can do so over on patreon.com slash near future laboratory. Thank you to all my wonderful patrons. And don't forget, I've got a newsletter over there on buttondown.com slash design fiction. There's also general seminar at generalseminar.com. And we have a discord server. I'll put all those links in the show notes. Okay. Thanks for listening. Seriously. Thank you. That's it. I'm Julian and I'm out.